watch the trucks, Toyotas with some kind of gun mounted on it, as men in fatigue systematically work their way through neighborhoods a few blocks away. They were coming. You knew it would happen. Someone would eventually rise to the top. There was nothing in particular that made them stand out from the soldiers the government had used to quell dissent other than the tundras you had just seen, but there was something about the bravado with which they strolled through the neighborhood. And even then, towards the end of the government's reign on the city, they had used militia forces to manage the peace. And you used the term peace quite liberally, but they weren't like this. You'd like to be able to say that the soldiers that once were there to keep the peace were less violent and didn't extort the residents, but that'd be a lie. Times were tough, and despite trying to prepare as much as possible, there simply wasn't enough food, just not enough to go around. The winter snows had been a great resource for clean water. The key was to harvest immediately after the snow had stopped, and to only scoop the first few inches. The house had stored water in any container they could find. Old jugs, mason jars, cat litter containers, anything. The basement stayed above freezing, so the containers were stored down there. And despite the new heating system that you had rigged up that heated the whole house with wood gasification, the house stayed cool because it was already becoming hard to find new wood to burn, and you were only halfway through the winter. Everyone slept in the basement. The only thing keeping everyone alive was probably the powdered Gatorade found in the back of a cleaned out grocery store down the street. There wasn't much to forage, and they didn't have much food stored before things had gotten worse. Despite everyone's best effort to make the complex work as an autonomous zone, it was becoming pretty clear that the skills needed didn't exist within the team and you were watching your friends slowly wither away. You watched the men work through the neighborhood, and a small part of you hoped they would find their way to your street soon. There was the occasional gunshots ringing in the distance, but it wasn't any different than usual. Honestly, it didn't seem any more common than before the collapse, but you paid more attention to the sounds. You had learned the difference in the sound of a small handgun and the mechanical clatter and gas venting of AKs. For someone who had never shot a gun, it was a bit unnerving. In this instance, there were no new sounds of gunshots, no sounds of AKs being unleashed on residents in the neighborhoods the militias were working through. You guessed that was a good thing. Food was tight, and if they were pillaging, people were of more use dead than alive. You were amazed at how your nerves had turned to steel. Despite having severe anxiety, and I mean, nowadays, who doesn't, you seemed to be thriving in this new world. You remembered some article you'd read online about how depressed people during one of the wars, World War I or II or something like that, they had been the ambulance drivers, the medics, the folks handling the disasters of war. You think it was Paris, or maybe another European city, but you're not sure. The chaos gave them meaning. For them, they were facing the fear they had worried about for so long, and it couldn't break them. You felt kind of like that. The groups moved closer systematically throughout the night. As they marched towards your neighborhood, you realized you weren't the only one awake in the building waiting to see what was next. You knew no matter what, at the very least, you were all in it together. A voice crept up from behind. It's time to go. It was Marie, and she was huddling two groggy-eyed children. We need to leave now. Now, you think? All of the work we did? All of the storage? This was yours now. You looked back at the gasification system you installed. 
It was your pride and joy for some strange fucking reason. That fucking heating system. Why did you love it so much? We're gonna leave this, you say, knowing she was right, and it felt so unfair. All of the work gone to waste. You didn't have a backpack, nor did you even know what to pack. You didn't know where you were going, and you didn't even know if it was temporary. Well, you did. Deep down, you knew you were never coming back. It was time to find greener pastures. It was time to find more folks to work with and build better systems. It was time. Hey folks, thanks for coming back and we're looking to build on that basic forest ecology we had discussed last episode. This is the Poor Proles Almanac and this is Andy again coming to you with that fresh leftist prepper content. You can find us on Spotify, iTunes, and wherever you get your podcasts. And you can find us on Patreon if you'd like to help us cover the cost of hosting the podcast. We have gotten to the point where we have squeezed out all the freebies we could for podcast storage, so if you're enjoying it, please help offset some of the cost of managing this. If we get more than we need, we'll be donating it to good causes and keeping y'all in the loop. While we do enjoy making this content, there's about 20 hours worth of work that goes into each episode, so any support we can get we fully and wholeheartedly appreciate. Additionally, if you're using iTunes, please give us a review so more folks find the podcast and hopefully join us on our journey. Also, we're on Instagram and Facebook if you want to follow us over there, although we do have some issues with linking the two, so Instagram's usually more active. And if this is your first episode, we highly, highly recommend going back to the first episode and catching up, since each episode springboards from the previous content. However, we will be breaking that up with some new episode content where we'll actually be doing some work with Elliot finally. It should be interesting and I'm looking forward to the dialogue about what our future can look like together. For those of you that are returning, if you haven't started to realize it yet, we started with the big picture, global warming and complex systems, down to the smaller features of this in order to build out a comprehensive framework for how these things tie together and further how they integrate into human systems. With a basic forest ecology background, we can look more closely around the context of localized biome communities and how that helps narrate our conversations around things like water accessibility, foraging opportunities, forest types and successions, as well as how these impact our ability to grow specific foods. By identifying things such as indicator species within a biome, we can use this information to tease out which type of edible plants may be available, animals which may exist within the community, our ability to find water, pH of soil, and ultimately which plants we can plant with high likelihood of success. As preppers and folks generally interested in sustainability, this kind of knowledge is integral as we plan to either manipulate the environment around us or simply try to enjoy nature and enjoy the excesses that it has to offer us. Now, to divide the world into a few ecological zones is a difficult attempt, notably because of the small-scale variations that exist everywhere on Earth and because of the gradual changeover from one biome to another. Mix in global warming and it gets really complicated. Because of that, their boundaries must therefore be drawn arbitrarily and their characterization made according to the average conditions that predominate. The quote-unquote big picture of defining biomes focuses on three different subject areas as a matrix, latitudinal regions, altitudinal belts, and humidity provinces, all of which are impacted by both annual precipitation and evapotranspiration rates which is essentially a ratio of how quickly water evaporates versus how much it rains. Even within this context, there are numerous scientists who disagree on where to designate different regions and which specific indicators are integral in defining those contexts. So yeah, even trying to put together a basic formula of what a biome is is already a complicated endeavor. 
I want to cover a few quick tools that will help you in navigating this process. We had discussed in the first episode on complex systems theory that more complex systems were healthier and more anti-entropic, which is good for us and the Earth. Part of complex systems was around the idea of niche or stratification. The more species existed, the more they specialized, and what specialization was efficiency. This was helpful in understanding our biomes. We had discussed how generals do exist in order to fill gaps in the ebbs and flows of availability of resources, but specific species were often specialists. In the world of biomes, species such as red maple and red oak are common generalists and are found across half of the planet. The flip side of this are indicator species, which highlight when biomes have developed to the point of creating enough diversity and specific needs within their communities to be able to support these specialist animals and plants. When we speak of all the different animals and plants within an environment, we are speaking of species richness, which is an indicator of the health of a biome or forest. We have talked about co-evolution and how many species align their needs in order to create positive-positive relationships where they both benefit, either called mutualism or proto-cooperation, and when the opportunity for one of those species to enter an ecosystem, the other generally joins as well. The process of developing these specific divisions is called stratification, and the more stratification we see, the more developed a forest will typically be. What we keep seeing in all these discussions regarding nature is the repetition of patterns within the chaos, or rather, as we discussed in the first episodes, patterns with chaos within. Now, I feel like we're always talking about soil, but we're going to again in a different format because it's so integral to the discussion of identifying forests and biomes. When we talk about soil in this context, we are not talking simply about the mineral content in the biology, but the moisture content and the texture from regional variations of specific litter on the ground from the various plants and animals. We'll start with discussing true spotosol soils, which are usually gray in color with a thin band of black, highly decomposed organic material on the surface. This soil is common in northern coniferous forests because of the heavy needle content, and the soil is usually soft to walk upon. These soils form in sandy materials under climates where large amounts of water infiltrate into the soil at one or more times a year. In northern state, that time of year is usually during the snowmelt period in the spring. Gray-brown spotosol, often called alphasol, is the common soil found beneath eastern broadleaf deciduous forests. The color is more brown than true spotosol, and the litter layer of dropped leaves is not as thick. The soil is less acidic due to the lower amount of coniferous trees, and it's usually a transition type of soil between true spotosol and other regions. There are a few other soils I want to cover really quickly as well. Yellow soil is, well, yellowish on the surface and grayish yellow below and is mostly a sandy material with little hummus or litter layer. Pine and pine oak forests are common in these regions. Red soil, or oxisol, is common in the southeast and is usually an orangish color. The litter layer is thin and is a common soil for southern hardwood forests and southern oak hickory forests. Again, soil is the product of the combined effects of geology, rainfall, temperature, and vegetation. The geology is affected by the impacts of glaciation and the minerals and how they impact chemically with the water from rain and snowfall, as well as temperature, which give regional soils their colors. In the context of that matrix, you can see how the soil structure is delineated here pretty clearly. Each of these soil types both reinforces the species that live on it and is a byproduct of those species that live on it, reinforcing specific communities. With that in mind, moisture is a significant factor in our soil as well as our habitat. When we talk about our habitats, it's worth mentioning that moisture leads to three different habitat conditions, dry or xeric, wet 
or hydric, or in between, masic. Much like how we discussed in the climate change episode, temperature extremes make niche specialization harder and reduce the potential complexity of ecosystems, moisture content has a similar impact. It is the extremes that inhibit complexity in species. Limitation of extremes in all aspects of weather allow for greater diversity and resiliency, which is our end goal. What many folks are not aware of within this context is that forest density significantly impacts both humidity and rainfall. Up to 20% of humidity and rainfall is tied to localized forest landscaping. More density in the forest increases moisture in the air. Much like soil structure, the forest pushes to reinforce the conditions that it needs to continue to thrive. Further, it's important to consider that some indicator species, such as jack pine, are indicators of other extreme events, such as fire cycles in regions. Many coastal communities have historically been regions of wildfire, and our current involvement in reducing those events is leading to new opportunities for those regions to grow in new ways, but also with the negative impact of making those specific biomes more endangered. Part of identifying our biome and specifically a forest is identifying its age. As we said, more complex systems have more stratification, and generally, in nature, more complex systems are older. Using this sense of stratification is helpful in identifying forest age. We usually see a well-defined canopy and understory, and dead tree snags will generally be visible. The ground tends to also be irregular and rolling in its topography from various decomposed and decomposing stumps and nurse trees. Trees will tend to be larger and spaced further apart, and generally the litter layer on the ground will be extremely thick. Most of the sunlight is captured by the canopy and understory, and the ground level will usually be dark, cool, and without too much stuff growing on the ground, like grass. Younger forests, in contrast, are often dense and full of pole trees, that is, trees that look like poles, as they try to race one another to get to the canopy first. Light often does break through to the surface, but not in large sections, and the litter layer on the ground is often quite thin. Usually, these forests are rebuilding from a disturbance. If you haven't realized, we're also covering a lot of the material from the last episode because forest succession has such a big impact on things like biome and vice versa. With that in mind, there are ways to figure out what that disturbance was and can be really helpful in trying to figure out whether or not you should be concerned about poisons or anything else in your soil. In trying to figure out your forest history, let's start with grazing. Generally, grazing lands will stay fairly natural, but will typically have former shade trees dominating the landscape as the largest tree on the lot, with a full canopy much larger than the trees around it. There will still be those irregular rolling hills, and decomposed falling trees will likely be minimal since the land was lightly managed. Chances are any fallen trees were used for another purpose. Meanwhile, land used previously for grain or corn monocrops will be tilled every few years meaning the land will be pretty flat, the tree age will be pretty uniform, and there will likely be clusters of rocks from the tillage. When land is tilled, rocks are brought up from beneath as new soil is exposed to the air. These rocks are generally dumped at the end of the field, marking the edge of the farmer's property. However, compared with more intensive annuals, think your typical summer farmer's market fair, the monoculture field crops are much less substantially managed. Your annual veggie farmer would traditionally till the ground every year, meaning significantly more rocks ending up on the edge of the property, which were usually built into small walls. If you're from New England, you find these walls from 2 to 4 feet all over the woods. Further, these soils, because of the extensive erosion from the constant plowing, have sunk considerably and will likely slope away from the rock walls at a more extreme rate than wheat fields. 
There are plenty of other markers to look for with a careful eye to understand what's happened on your property. If this stuff interests you, I highly recommend checking out Tom Wessel's book, Reading the Forested Landscape, also Forest Forensics, which are both fantastic resources. In the past episode, we had discussed the importance of humans in developing forests into what is beneficial for us and creating a sustainable future. Even without our involvement, those same skills we have talked about are valuable in attempting to predict our forest's future. By identifying the species grown as saplings, we can identify if the trees that cover the canopy will continue to be the dominant species, or if another species appears to be moving in on that territory. These changes often come at the hands of different habitats nearby, which has a border called an ecotone. These ecotones are usually considered to be shrubby areas with a variety of species from the different forests nearby, and is a transitional area where species interact and compete in a way they otherwise wouldn't commonly. Because of this, ecotones are ideal spaces for things like hunting, where access to multiple game can be available, and are often some of the most diverse spaces within a forest. Ecotones can run from slim margins to wide transitional spaces with mixes of different forest and prairie types. So with that said, what determines a community? A forest is an assemblage of plants and animals coexisting and interacting. Together, they are an ecological community. Focusing in the United States, communities can vary considerably based on those key markers that we had discussed when attempting to dissect biomes. While no forests are the same, it is possible to recognize major regional forest communities. If you attempt to check Google to see what biome you live within, you'll be inundated with various suggestions, some vague and some incredibly specific. Even within those specific bodies, you'll find variation. In the forest ecology episode, we had discussed the impacts sun-facing sides of slopes have on forested landscape, and that plays out on a large and small scale. That all said, we can break down the eastern half of the United States into a handful of major forest communities. From Washington, D.C. up to the southern tip of Maine, and a couple hundred miles in is considered pine oak forest, while south of D.C. to almost the tip of Florida and out to Texas along the coast is considered southern mixed pine oak. Further inland into Appalachia is oak hickory forest communities. Even further inland, we see southern hardwood forests as well as beech maple forests. Toward Michigan are northern hardwoods and back to the coast toward Maine and Canada, we enter the boreal forest, and just like that we've covered most of the eastern half of the country. Simple, right? There's more to it than that, and I'm sure you know that. Despite those being considered the major forest communities, you can identify regions near you that don't fit into those major communities. Some of it has to do more with pioneering practices of clear-cutting massive regions than anything related to the natural state of the region itself. As we had discussed in the forest episode, oak hickory forests are the successive state for pine oak forests. So it only makes sense that the oak hickory forests are native to regions that have not been as extremely moonscaped by indulgent pioneers. With this in mind, let's talk about indicator species a bit more. We have talked about indicator species a bit, but it's worth mentioning that indicator species are incredibly useful when we're thinking about things like foraging. We can narrow our focus of what to study and learn by understanding the fundamentals of the forest around us. Since we may live in, say, the pine oak forest, but may be near an ecotone, it's worth being able to identify those species that help us as a reference point as we try to hunt and eat from the land around us. Or maybe even from a more selfless perspective, we can use the indicator species to further appreciate the complexities of nature around us. Further, indicator species can also speak to the health or diversity of a forest. Specifically, we can learn a lot about the biomass of a forest habitat, which simply means the combined weight of all the living organisms within the biome. 
Everyone is familiar with the concept of an apex predator, whether that means a lion, a wolf, or a bear. For every major predator, there must be numerous smaller species to sustain that predator, and in turn, even more numerous smaller species for those animals, and at some point we transition from carnivorous animals to herbaceous, and ultimately we find that the foundation of our forest health comes from the plants themselves and how quickly they're able to generate and store energy from the sun which can feed the entire system. The amount of healthy apex predators is directly related to the overall health of the forest ecosystem. In this sense, we can use the biomass of the forest community to see how diverse and healthy the ecosystem is, and we can identify the parts in the ecological food pyramid. Now, this is important in today's world because the most damaging and most hunted animal in America only is because of our refusal to live alongside with these apex predators. And what I'm talking about are deer. Deer, which are the most hunted animal in the United States, remains also the most out-of-control population across the country, and our attempts to sustainably harvest them reflects the lack of nature being able to sustainably move energy up that food pyramid because we have broken that food pyramid. With this in mind, and understanding the relationships of species in that the wolf didn't eat the healthiest deer running around, but usually the sickest, those wolves helped keep the deer population both smaller, allowing for an abundance of food to keep those deer from starving to death, and also by weeding out the weak from the gene pool. The wolves play a special role that humans really can't in this relationship. It's no surprise then that we are starting to see more and more serious disease issues in the wild deer population now. But back to the discussion about the importance of identifying your local biome. By knowing you're in a boreal forest, for example, you might want to keep in mind that you're in a moose territory which can be ornery creatures, and if you know you're going to be in a boreal forest, it's important to know the difference between, say, bearberry, a low-growing fruiting shrub with edible red berries and round, small, shiny leaves, with winterberry, which has the same exact description and exists in the same areas, except eating a few handfuls of winterberry can lead to seizures. Now, I know you can eat some winterberry, but that's the point. If you don't know the nuances between these things, you can definitely put yourself in danger. If you're busy trying to learn all poisonous berries, say, on the East Coast, you may not pick up on the key indicators which will keep you safe for each specific species. Instead, you can focus on the conditions in your area and which are most likely to exist. We can use an understanding of the basics of forest communities to focus our knowledge base in a way that is both more meaningful for us in a practical sense but in a way that will also be reinforced by our ability to apply the knowledge we have learned in real situations, which makes the knowledge that much more valuable. This is what our ancestors did. They knew the safe and not safe species to eat where they lived, not every species everywhere. A more practical approach is more meaningful in a survival situation, and that's what we're talking about here. Further, by understanding these systems, we know if we see, say, willow trees, we must be close to water, or the water table is quite high even if we can't see the water directly. Further, if we think back to the soil episodes, we had talked extensively about the relationships that had evolved between the biology of the soil and the plants which inhabit it. When we think about things like creating new edible forests and creating resilient food systems, it's important for us to keep these communities in mind because they are very much the life force keeping our plants healthy. We can try to do this in a few ways. We can identify plants from these forest communities or related communities, like those successive forests we had talked about in the past, and use those plants which have evolved with those biological communities as the primary food producers in our food systems. 
or we can try to identify closely related plants which might be able to more effectively build symbiotic relationships with the biological communities within the soil. For example, the American chestnut no longer really exists in any practical sense. However, the Chinese chestnut, which did not evolve here but has many similar traits and characteristics, could be something that we could introduce to these biological communities in these biomes to see if it's able to evolve with the species that exist today. Now, what exists for research in this area is extremely lacking, so I won't pretend that this is hard-backed science at this point, but what we do know is that plants and bacteria have symbiotic relationships that have developed over hundreds of thousands of years, and those systems have made them more efficient. I don't think it's a far stretch to think that plants more related would be more effective than plants less related to work with that soil community. Now, in the context of talking about food production in a forest, we will be covering fruit tree management as well as leaf hay production in episodes shortly after this. Leaf hay I'm particularly excited to dive into because it's very much a lost skill that we're actively learning as a species all over again. Both of these things tie in very deeply to biomes and understanding forest ecology and biomes will help make you a better gardener, hunter, and forager. All of these skills are very much lost. When we look back in time, many of the things that we have to find deep in old books written long ago are only cataloged in a handful of books because of the fact the information was widely known, so no one felt it was necessary to articulate that information in print form. Today, archaeologists are struggling to find things as simple as what kind of beds did medieval peasants sleep on and how did they keep their dirt floors clean. In many ways, you could say this speaks to how far we have come as a species in that the basic knowledge to survive 500 years ago has been lost because our society has evolved so far. But it also highlights how unprepared we are as people should anything happen in our way of living be frozen, even for a short period of time. Sure, we will still have houses, probably, and mattresses will continue to exist for quite a while, even if everything came to a halt today. But the fundamental knowledge for those skills is the nugget of value that is most crucially lost. And in a way, that's what we're trying to do here. Build some of that knowledge about how the world works to make fundamentally sound decisions about how to rebuild a world from the shell of the old. The reality is, and we'll discuss this further at another date, is that we will likely revisit the industrial world shortly after the basics, food, water, shelter, safety, after those are taken care of. The lights will turn back on in factories. It may be weeks, months, or decades. We don't know. But that day will come and a sense of normalcy will return. But until then, we plan for the worst, and we relearn the foundation of our food system through the current ecology that surrounds us, which brings me somehow back to the world of biomes. Hopefully, you're finding a little more appreciation and possibly a sense of contextualization for some of the things you've been trying to figure out when it comes to finding your place within nature. And that's important. It's really important. One of the things that, to me, is supremely important about understanding our place within nature is identifying the seasonality and temporary state nature always exists within. Personally, the fact that we spend so much time as a culture focusing on the things like decorating our homes for the season, and for example, having pumpkin spiced everything in the fall, is a reflection that we as a species are being taken out of our element. We are trying to recreate our relationship with nature outside of it, when that nature is still right outside our door. One of the most enjoyable things for me is being able to say, it's October, so I'm harvesting apples, splitting firewood, making sure the cover crops are in over the annual garden beds, 
maybe collecting the last few hazelnuts and getting the beehives ready for the winter. Being in tune with nature, even in the artificial sense that we create through things like, say, bees that live in a box that we create and manipulate, provide us with the framework to respect and remember nature. In that remembrance through our give and take with nature, we are able to better understand ourselves and our place within the natural cycle. When we have no understanding of the world around us, then we don't feel as though we belong with the world around us. It says a lot that there are multiple TV shows about surviving in the wild for a week, or whatever time they do, as though that wasn't what our species did merely a few thousand years ago. It wasn't long ago that strawberries were only available a few weeks a year on shelves or in your backyard and were the marker of summer's beginning. While the benefits of having access to things like strawberries year-round may seem wholly good, it's easy to see why losing that relationship with food when it's supposed to be available can contribute to our lack of place. To quote Baudrillard, It is no longer a question of imitation, nor duplication, nor even parody. It is a question of substituting the signs of the real for the real. We no longer have those real experiences and have substituted the signs of the real the scented hand soap and pastiche gourds instead of real living things in a time when they should be alive, in a time when they should be bountiful. We have accepted easy short-term access at the cost of what makes us human. In the third order of simulacra, which is associated with the postmodern age, we are confronted with precession of simulacra, that is, the representation precedes and determines the real. For example, Starbucks can better define our season than the ripeness of the bounty hanging from a fruit or nut tree. This is why, despite the fact that not everyone needs to grow food and understand nature and know how to track and so on, that we should all have a relationship with nature. And I'll put that in context a little bit. I used to run a nonprofit for at-risk youth in a small city where I grew up. During lunch, as the kids cracked open their sodas and whatever, I was eating a peach. One of the teenage boys came up to me and had a funny look on his face. He asked me what I was eating. It was a peach, and I don't mean to sound mean or arrogant or anything like that, but to highlight the sheer ability of somebody to exist and be so disconnected from food that we need to live, never mind nature itself, that he couldn't identify a staple food for most Americans 75 years ago. So I think it's about here where we can end this episode. We've covered some basic tools that can help you in identifying various pieces of your forest community to further understand the soil and biological communities in order to effectively manage the forest for abundant edibles and a further target which species may already be growing wild for foraging, as well as to assess which plants would grow best in your area in order to have more resilient, successful edibles in your vicinity. Further, we can identify the health of the forests in our regions by paying attention to the ecological pyramid and identifying the volume of biomass in our forest to understand how resilient that forest may be and if it could handle harvesting from humans. Hopefully this episode was enjoyable enough for you to further narrow down our analysis of humans within the context of nature and how we can build resilient, sustainable communities focused on scientific understanding and a healthy, mutually beneficial relationship with the natural world around us. Stay safe out there. This is Andy, and this is the Poor Proles Almanac.